All right. I need you to be impressed with something about me. You know. Uh, anyway, a question that's becoming increasingly relevant for Christians in our nation is this. How do we live out our faith in God when our schools, uh, the media, political leaders, and so much more in our world does not share our faith and sometimes will not tolerate our faith? Well, today, it just so happens, as we return to our series through the Old Testament book of Daniel, we'll find answers to that question. We'll be in chapter 3, where we're told an amazing true story of three men who lived over 2,600 years ago, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, maybe better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what they're referred to in this story. We'll see how these men live out their faith in God while living in a pagan culture, a pagan kingdom. Daniel chapter 3 paints for us a beautiful portrait of faith in God. And it's my prayer that as we examine this story, as we see this picture take shape, God will use it to teach us about biblical faith. Uh, That today we'll grow in our understanding of what it means to live out our faith in this uh, pagan world. Would you pray with me to that end now? Father God, I pray that you would be with us as we look at your word, as we look at this This true, beautiful story of these three young men, Father. Open our hearts. Give us a clear understanding of what your word is is saying. And use it. Use it uh, to transform our hearts and use it as we seek to apply it as we uh, leave today. So be with us in Christ's name. Now the first thing we need to understand and the first thing we see in Daniel chapter 3 is that faith is tested by God. That's our first point this morning. Uh, But before we get to our picture of faith, let me establish from Scripture the general truth of this first point. First, the Bible teaches that faith is tested. Faith is tested. Faith, our assurance, our trust, our belief in what we cannot see, and in specifically God, who is to us invisible, Our faith is often seen in response to a problem, a challenge, or what James calls uh, trials. He writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James says that when we face trials of various kinds, when problems, difficulties, hardships come into our lives, whether we experience Uh, when we experience suffering and pain and sorrow, this is a test of our faith. The test is this. Will we, in a time of trouble, continue to trust and obey God? Will we continue to live by faith in Jesus Christ? If so, you pass the test. Your faith is proven genuine. Your faith is bolstered, in a sense. You go, oh, I I do believe, and that increases your steadfastness and perseverance, as James goes on to say. But if you don't, if if you reject or run from God, then you fail the test, and your faith is proven false. So first, faith is tested. And second, this is the tougher one, faith is tested by God. Now, James doesn't say where these trials and tests uh, that test our faith come from. And as we'll see in Daniel 3... 
doesn't explicitly say that God is testing the faith of these three young men. But Scripture teaches that, uh, what did we just sing? What did we just sing? The last song? Were you guys here? Who reigns? God reigns. Jesus reigns. God is sovereign, ruler over all things, including, uh, not, not just some things, not just the good things, all things, including the tests and trials that come our way. The psalmist writes, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. No matter what the direct cause of a test might be, whether like Job, uh, if you're familiar with Job, his tests came from Satan. Or like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which we'll see, they, their test comes from King Nebuchadnezzar. Ultimately, God is in control of any test of faith that we experience. So as we now come to Daniel chapter 3, and we see the test of faith given to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, know that on one level, the test was caused by King Nebuchadnezzar, but on another, higher or ultimate level, their faith was tested by God. And this is crucial for us to understand. Because if God is behind the test, then God has a purpose for the test. And it actually helps us understand and it helps us go through the test when we understand that they're from God. That's true for these three guys and that's true for you and me. So now let's turn to our story and see faith is tested by God. Beginning in verse 1 we read, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. You know, that's pretty big. It's about 90 feet tall. Nine stories. Go find a, I don't know, in Riverside, do we even have a nine-story tall building? Maybe. Which ones? Maybe some of those downtown ones. Okay. Pretty tall, nine stories. Don't jump, it will hurt. And its breadth was six cubits. That's about nine feet wide. So it's 90 feet by nine feet, approximately. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent uh, to gather his satraps, a ruler of a satrapy or a province, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that the king had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers, the justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So all the leading officials from throughout this empire, Nebuchadnezzar's empire, the Babylonian empire, were gathered before this image of gold for its dedication. This is huge, by the way. It's a big deal. Now, Daniel, the book of Daniel, doesn't explicitly tell us what the image was, but he repeatedly says that it was set up by King Nebuchadnezzar. So it's possible that it was one of the Babylonian gods. However, I think, and others, based on the previous chapter, this golden image probably represented King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Talk about a power trip, right? If you remember, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about a great image. This was last week? Two weeks ago. I forgot. Thanks, Brian, for preaching last week. That was great. One of the things I love about when other people preach is when I sing, I can sing loud. and 
because I always am afraid I'm going to damage my voice for the speaking, so I'm seeking. You guys don't care about that. Okay. If you remember chapter 2, so he dreams about this great image, and then uh, back to chapter 2, in verse 32, Daniel describes the image of his dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this way. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs bronze, its legs iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, as you looked, a stone was cut out of out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of clay, iron and clay, and broke them into pieces. Now, when Daniel interpreted this dream, he said that each part of the image represented four temporal kingdoms. King Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom was represented by the head of gold. But he would be defeated by another kingdom, turned out to be Persia, represented by the chest and arms of silver. And then, the most important part of the dream, a stone would destroy the statue, and that stone represented the eternal kingdom of God. So in building this gold-covered statue, it seems likely that Nebuchadnezzar is making the statement that he would defy Daniel's interpretation of the dream given to him by God, Daniel's God, and that his, not God's kingdom, would remain forever. So that's my belief, my speculation, but actually no matter what the statue represented, Nebuchadnezzar's plan for it would test the faith of these three Jewish exiles. Beginning in verse 4, we read, And they, back to all those government officials we talked about, stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, the bagpipe was there. That was interesting. We could go into these instruments. We're not going to. Okay. And every kind of music, you will fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore... As soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tigran, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the Babylonian Empire included many kinds of peoples who spoke several languages. And this was a public statement that no matter who you were, no matter what your religion was, no matter what your culture was, if you were part of Neb's kingdom, his empire, then you must worship this golden image. Probably, you must bow down to him. And that was a problem. It was a test of faith for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Would their faith in God hold fast? Or would they, like all the others, would they fall, I mean, it, fall down and worship this golden image that the king had set up? Well, our second point definitely answers the question. Faith obeys God. Beginning in verse 8, we read, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, astrologers, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tigran, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, a burning fire. 
I felt, I was thinking Johnny Cash there, burning, ring, burning fiery furnace, okay? A burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Three young men stood in utter defiance to this most powerful king, to his decree. Why? Uh, I think because it conflicted with uh, an even more truly firm decree of their God. In the first and second of the Ten Commandments, God had said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So the test for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was would they obey God's commandments and suffer the consequences of that? Or would they obey the king and suffer the consequences of that? Or not? Now, with the king's threat of being cast into a burning, fiery furnace, I can see how how they would have been tempted to rationalize and convince themselves that it would be all right to bow down just this once Ignoring the commands of God. Some would have made a case for situational ethics. In this situation, it would be all right to bow down because they'd get killed if they didn't. Certainly God would not want these three young men to die, would he? Others would have argued in terms of culture. The Babylonians are not going to understand the laws of our God. We don't want to offend their culture and ruin our witness We'll bow down now so that they will listen to us later. Anyway, nobody that we know will see us anyway. Still others would make a silent protest. We'll kneel on the outside, but we'll be standing and worshiping the true God on the inside, in our hearts. And finally, maybe the most insidious way people rationalize their sin is by arguing uh, forgiveness. We have a loving God who is slow to anger and quick to forgive, We'll bow down just this once and then ask for forgiveness. God is more understanding and forgiving than the Babylonians, right? Well, it's true that God does forgive the sins of his people. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. John says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we misunderstand the grace of God when we base our disobedience on His gracious forgiveness. That reveals a deep problem with our heart. As Paul writes to the church in Rome, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or I like the, I think the NIV translated, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Yes, God does forgive, but by no means, God forbid, by no means are we to use His grace and forgiveness or anything else for that matter to rationalize or justify our sin, our disobedience to His commands. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have have come up, could have come up with many excuses to justify their disobedience to the law of God. 
But by faith, they were obedient to those first two commands. They did not bow down to this graven image. They did not put another God before their gods. But what about us? Do we compromise under pressure, even though the pressure we face is nothing compared to facing death, facing a fiery furnace, if we obey God? Let's think about some of the other Ten Commandments. What about the fourth that says to keep the Sabbath holy? We can often compromise under the pressure of a society that totally ignores this commandment and continues to totally ignore it. We're drawn into activities from sports to shopping to eat so easily and without thought. We rationalize and justify our activities and our disobedience to the fourth commandment. I'd recommend if that's a struggle, watch Chariots of Fire, the movie. It gives a good perspective on that commandment. Or the sixth commandment that says, uh, we shall not murder. Yet even among Christians, there are those who murder their unborn babies because of the pressure of embarrassment or the pressure of unwanted children. And what about the seventh commandment, which says that uh, we shall not commit adultery, which includes all kinds of sexual immorality. But again, many Christians have fallen into sin because of the pressures of our society and have used all the excuses mentioned above, especially that forgiveness one. But what we see in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throughout Scripture is that a crucial aspect of biblical faith is that it obeys God. In chapter 11, verse 8 of Hebrews, the writer tells us that by faith Abraham obeyed. And if you read the chapter, it's got a lot of obedience in this chapter dedicated to faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. He couldn't see where he was going, but by faith he went. Faith is obedience to all God's commands, even when faced with the heat of a burning flaze, burning fire. And not only is obedience crucial to faith, but we need faith to obey God's commands. In Luke chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus says to his disciples, And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Really? Seven times? If Gary comes and punches me seven times and then he comes and repents, not that I would let him get away with that. No, just kidding. But, but I'm just supposed to, really? That seems crazy. And so the disciples respond, verse 5, increase our faith. They recognize that it takes faith to obey a difficult command like forgiving those who hurt you. And it certainly took faith for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to defy the command of the king and obey God, especially when, when they came face to face with the king's wrath. In verse 13, we read, Then Nebuchadnezzar is in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. In a moment, these three young men found themselves standing before this powerful king. The king looked at them, uh, these promising men, whom he had recently, if you remember, given a high place in the government. 
And beginning in verse 14 we read, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Are you really defying me? Huh, that seems, that seems not very smart. Let me give you a second chance. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tigron, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Chills come to me. I don't know about you. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It seems Nebuchadnezzar had like a, what's that disease where you have no short-term memory? He did not have that. He had already forgotten the God of Daniel who had interpreted his dream. Now he's faced with three young men who worship this same God, three men uh, of who by faith, who by faith are willing to obey God, not the king. The only three, in the, I don't know where Daniel was, that's always a question for me, he's not mentioned. He might have been out of town. Uh, The only three willing to not bow down. And what comes next, that they continue to defy the king and obey God, is a deepening of the beauty of this picture of faith. That's our third point. Uh, Faith submits to God. I should add, no matter what. In all circumstances. Beginning in verse 16, we we read, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In this uh, one statement, they make, they, make, uh, they make three statements that reveal the essence, I think, of biblical faith. First, biblical faith has the assurance to say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. We know that by His great power, God can deliver us. That is not a question in our minds. God is all-powerful. God can do what God wants to do. Second, biblical faith has the confidence to say, he will deliver us out of your hand. Biblical faith has a firm conviction that God will work on behalf of his people, that he will, in one way or another, deliver them. But third, biblical faith also has the submission to say, but if not, if not, if he doesn't deliver us, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. It doesn't matter. We're not not disobeying his commands. Whether God chooses to physically deliver us from your hands or not, we will not disobey him. I believe he will deliver me, but if the deliverance doesn't come in the time, in the manner that I desire, I want, I will still trust in him. As Job said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. So in summary, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying that they know that God can deliver them, and they believe he will deliver them, deliver them but they are, not, they are not God. They are not the sovereign Lord of the universe. God is, 
And so ultimately, they will submit to His will no matter what it is. No matter what He chooses to do. In this or any test, they will in faith obey God and accept the consequences of their disobedience to man, even kings. And that, my friend, is a beautiful portrait of biblical faith. So many Christians, I think, I think they think that faith is some kind of a lucky rabbit's foot. And God is like a genie who is bound to do whatever we want him to do if we have enough faith. You know, the amount of faith is not crucial. Let me just say that. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus says, go on, we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, It's not the amount of faith. It's where your faith is placed, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Some Christians seem to, to live like faith is a power, that it's like separate. You can separate it from God. And, and that, that faith, if you have enough faith, you can control what God actually does. If I have enough faith, then God is bound to do what I want Him to do. Let me just say this, that is every other religion in the world, except this one. If I do these things, if I believe this way, then God must do what I want Him to do. Not so. But we say, after all, didn't Jesus say, have faith in God? Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And in John 15, 7, Jesus also said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And I think people like the second parts of those things but, they, but they, they don't get it. There's a, there's a prerequisite. The problem is we don't fully understand these kinds of passages. They don't say have faith and you can move mountains. I think, I think that's a say. Have faith and you can move mountains, right? That's the thing people say. Have faith and you can ask whatever you want and you'll receive it. I think there's churches that actually teach that. They say have faith. These passages say have faith in God. Uh, Jesus said, abide in Christ. The abiding in Christ, I think is the same thing, is having faith in God, and it's crucial. Having faith in God means that you are in relationship with God. You are abiding in Christ. Therefore, Christ is directing your wants and your desires and your prayers. So having faith in God to move mountains or to ask whatever you want, means based on your abiding relationship with Christ, you believe, you have no doubts that God wants you to move a mountain. If you're certain, based on your relationship with God, that He wants you to pray and move a mountain, then do it. That's never happened. He's never called me to do that, move a mountain. Otherwise, you won't ask. And I've never asked Him to move a mountain, because I don't... He hasn't... He hasn't given me the faith that he wants me to move a mountain. But if he did, I could, and you could. Plus, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you have a biblical understanding, faith, of faith that includes submission to the will of God. Jesus knew, Jesus, we're talking about Jesus, God the Son, that God's will is not always in line with our will, or mysteriously even, his will. He cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, as he, uh, as he uh, sweat, sweated droplets of blood, as he was facing the cross for us. He said, Father, 
If you're willing, remove this cup, the cup of the cross. If there's any other way to take care of this problem of the sinfulness of humanity, then my death, my sacrificial death, my taking the wrath of God upon myself, my separation from you for a time at least, do that, would you? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Faith includes submitting to the Father's will when it's different from ours. And that's what we see in these three young men. They certainly did not want to be burned alive. But they submitted to the will of God. They obeyed His commands. And this didn't make Nebuchadnezzar happy, just so you know. Beginning in verse 19, we read, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men... So he was used to throwing people into the furnace, apparently. But I'm going to heat it up seven times. And he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fire. So they were wrapped up like a mummy, it sounds like, thrown in. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So, no rewards for those guys for, for throwing them in. And so that should have been, from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, right? That should have been the end of the story. They're gone. Move on. Everybody's bowing now. We can go forward. We're all united under the worship of me. You know, that's what I really like. But that's not how the story ended. One more point, that is, faith is rewarded by God. Beginning in verse 24, we read, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound. This makes me laugh. Four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. So clearly, God rewarded the faith of Shadrach and Meshach. Those three guys, I'm tired of it. Uh, with deliverance from death, they are not hurt. But there's more pictured here, right? He could have just unbound him and had him walk out or something. Who was that fourth person? Being who Nebuchadnezzar uh, describes as a son of the gods. There was something different about him, clearly. He wasn't just a regular guy. Well, most scholars, I've read some stuff, agree that it was either a technical term, a Christophany, which just means a physical appearance of Christ before he was incarnated. Or it, it could have been an angel. In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar refers to that, that image, that person, that being as an angel. But in either case, I tend to go with the Christophany, I like that, but it could just be because I like it. In either case, his appearance is, is a beautiful picture of God's presence with believers in their time of trouble. As those who have faith in God, 
as those who trust in Jesus Christ, as those who've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's hopefully us, we can always experience the presence of God. That's the gift we receive, right? When we trust in Christ. But I believe there's a special way God comes to us and comforts us in our times of trouble. I think that fourth person angel Christ testifies to the fact that God will always reward his people with grace and strength and comfort in their time of need. He'll be there in the midst of our trouble. He'll be there in the midst of the fire, the fires of life. As David writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So our hearts rejoice, really, and we give this little fist pump for God's mighty deliverance of the, of an, and, and His presence with these three faithful Hebrews. They stood up to the man, and there you go. And then beginning in verse 26, we read, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Okay, he's changing his tone here. His tone. Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come, off, come upon them. It's just total miraculous. They were like, uh, to, God, when God does, does stuff, he doesn't really do it halfway, right? He just, I'm going to totally protect you. I'm not going to, you know, they could have come out with no eyebrows and looking a little weird. And that still would have been miraculous. But God says, I'm just going to protect you completely. So again, the immediate reward for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for their faith in God was experiencing deliverance from the fiery furnace, right? But we have to ask, I think, what, what about uh, those who have faith in God but are not miraculously delivered? I think of Stephen, uh, uh, the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 7, you know, stoned to death for his faith. Or of uh, actually all the apostles except John, they tried to boil him in oil and other things, but God sort of delivered him. John was like the deliverer acceptance. But the other 11, including Paul, church tradition tells us they were killed for their faith. They were not physically delivered, ultimately. I think of the Nigerian Christians who were being murdered on a continual basis for their faith. And the list goes on. What about those, literally thousands, maybe millions, who throughout history and in our day experience the phrase, but if not, even if he doesn't deliver us, how is their faith rewarded? Does their uh, lack of deliverance mean they didn't have enough faith? No, 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 no. Never think that. That's taught in places in our world, in churches, people using the Bible to teach that if you had enough faith, this wouldn't be happening to you. Reject it, as from the pit of hell, please. 
Hebrews 11, let's just turn there for a second, is a chapter, wonderful chapter of the Bible devoted entirely to the subject of faith. If you want to understand faith better, go there. And beginning in verse 32, uh, the, writer be- the writer starts to conclude his thoughts on this subject of faith. He starts with a summary of the magnificent deliverances that some of God's people had experienced through faith. This is what he says. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. We'll read about that in a couple weeks. That's That's old Daniel. Quench the power of fire. That's probably referring to these guys right here. Escaped the edge of the sword. Were made strong out of weakness. Became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So what a list of miraculous deliverances as a result of faith in God. But that's only half the picture. Same faith. Picking up in verse 35, we read, Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings. Insert Jesus there. He experienced those things. And even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That last sentence says, uh, of these men and women who by faith believed in God's love and care, even though they were not delivered miraculously, the world was not worthy of them. This implies to me that they were the best of the best. The few, the proud, the godly, I don't know. Because like Jesus, who was not delivered from the cross, the cup did not pass from him. There was no other way. These Old Testament saints that the author of Hebrews is writing of, they endured to the end. We tend to make heroes out of those who are miraculously delivered or cured or healed. Oh, you must have great faith. But the Lord sees things different. He looks with great favor on those who maintain a trust in Him, in His sovereign plan, though through the darkest and deepest valleys. In Hebrews 11, 9 and 20, we see their ultimate reward. And all these, though commended through, through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Okay, this is a little hard to understand, especially at this late point in the sermon. So grasp onto your uh, last bit of uh, understanding here. Listen carefully. All these Old Testament saints who had faith in God, whether they experienced deliverance like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or death like Isaiah, who Jewish tradition says was sawn in two, all of them in in their lifetime did not receive what was promised. And what was promised? The Messiah, who would deliver them into God's eternal kingdom. 
the Messiah who would cause them to rise again to a better life. That's the something better that God provided for them and for us together in Christ. So the point is, even though these Old Testament saints did not always experience physical deliverance from their troubles, they, like us and all who have faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promises of God, will experience eternal deliverance from sin and death. We, all who have faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for our sins, will receive the reward of heaven. Eternally being in the infinite presence of God. That's the ultimate reward that we can look forward to with a sure hope. And it's greater by far than any earthly deliverance or reward that we might experience. I mean, even if you're delivered physically from the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, no. Even eventually you're going to die. Something's going to get you in this life. However, no, that's not a however. Okay. So, so the ultimate, the ultimate reward is Christ. Eternity in relationship with God. And there are two final, but, so that's the ultimate, that's sort of the climax, but the passage continues, and we're going to continue. Two final rewards of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith in God. Beginning in verse 28, we read, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's commandment and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. He apparently liked to tear people limb from limb. That was last chapter 2. And their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. As a result of their faith in God and God's deliverance of them, Nebuchadnezzar, the one who set up the idol, the one who would forced people to worship the idol, the one who had tried to kill them, For not worshiping the idol, he gives some glory to God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he threatens to kill and ruin anyone who speaks against their God. This is not to say that Nebuchadnezzar experienced saving faith himself. Notice it is still the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not the God of gods, not my God, but he does reward them, and Daniel and any other Jew living in Babylon with the right to worship their God. There's no more, until we get to a a different king uh, later in Daniel, there's no more, uh, you know, of this kind of stuff, this kind of persecution for not doing what the king wants in Babylon. And that's a great reward that we can sometimes take for granted, I think. But many people throughout history and even today in countries like China and North Korea, Nigeria, would love to experience that reward. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rewarded with the freedom freedom of religion. They could practice their religion. And finally, in verse 30, we read, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Because of their faith in God, they were rewarded with better jobs and more authority. And like Daniel in the previous chapter, they were then able to use their newfound respect and authority 
to not only freely worship God, but to influence others in the kingdom of Babylon to put their faith in the one true God of heaven and earth. So that brings us to the end of chapter 3, where I think we've seen a beautiful portrait of faith in God. And it's my hope and my prayer that each one of us has grown in their individual, in our understanding of biblical faith. And that we're now prepared, better prepared, to face any test of our faith in God. And whether our test results uh, uh, in our physical deliverance or not, I pray that we will remain faithfully submissive to the Lord. That as we experience pressures Uh, and even persecution from our culture to abandon our biblical values, to go along, to get along, to not rock the boat, to coexist. As we're expected to bow before the golden image of whatever our culture is currently worshiping, I pray that by faith in God, for God's glory and for our ultimate good, we will remain faithful by obeying his word rather than giving into the pressures of this world. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, I pray. I thank you for this picture. It's provided for us. These three young men who defied a king and glorified and honored you, Father. I pray that, that we would be people like that. That our trust in you would be unflinching, unwavering. And whether we're delivered or not, our trust in you will be unflinching, unalterable, Father. We will trust in you. We will continue to obey you, even when the culture around us hates us for it. Lord, I pray uh, that you would work in our hearts, that you would work in our faith, that we would have this kind of faith, however small it is, but it would be faith placed fully in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Close us out with one more song. As always, if you'd like to stand, you're more than welcome to.